Well, take your Bibles and find your way to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 this morning. We are in a series, a sermon series, entitled From Creation to New Creation. In this series, we've been looking at the large arc of God's redemptive story and His plan of redemption. For example, last week, if you weren't with us, we looked at the significance of ancient Israel's sacrificial system and specifically how Jesus is the better once and for all sacrifice. We learned in Hebrews, connecting some of the Old Testament sacrificial code in Leviticus. Remember reading that aloud together? Connecting that with what the author of Hebrews says, pointing how the Old Testament sacrifices are a shadow. They were pointing us towards the great once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's not the only way, of course, of the Old Testament points us towards Christ. There's, that's just one example. And that's one of the aims of this series is showing how the story arc of God's plan of redemption is really from Genesis all the way through to Revelation of God taking creation from, from creation to a new creation. All of the Old Testament scriptures as a whole point toward Jesus. Now that's different than saying that Jesus can be found on every page of the Bible. Jesus is found everywhere in the Old Testament. The scriptures as a whole, the Old Testament scriptures as a whole, are pointing towards Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, that it says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus' own confession is that the Old Testament scriptures are bearing witness. They're bearing a testimony about himself. Jesus understood that. And really one of the most notable places where we're told that the Old Testament scriptures ultimately point to Jesus is recorded in a story in Luke chapter 24. Some of you are familiar with this. There were some travelers that were on their way to a village named Emmaus. And when they were about seven miles from Jerusalem on their journeys, they were chatting about the recent events that had happened, about Christ's death, about his resurrection, about his, um, the people, the claims of his resurrection. They were, they were talking about these things. Jesus comes and joins in their travels and he asks them, you know, what are you talking about? What's happening? And he listens to what they're telling. They're kind of marveling that, that Jesus doesn't know what had happened. And Jesus then responds to them in Luke 24 when it says, he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus understood that the Old Testament, in their entirety, that their unified message, that they were pointing in one direction, it was to him, to his fulfillment, to his life, to his great saving acts. And what was he doing? He is bringing bringing us from creation to new creation. And that's why a series like this is so important and helpful for us as a church family. It's, it's really aimed at helping us understand this big arc of God's plan of redemption, the overarching purpose of what God has been doing in the world, what he's promised, how he's fulfilled those promises, who Jesus is, why he is so significant, and why week after week we gather to really adore and worship and proclaim his glories. The main character of the scriptures is not us. It's God. The main character of salvation is not us. It is God. We are a part of God's story of redemption because God has freely and graciously chosen to take us from creation to new creation. And this is why we celebrate. This is why we sing. This is why we praise. 
because we are part of that story through God's gracious aim. So today in the sermon, I want to help us understand more about how God is taking us, taking humanity from creation to new creation through Jesus. I was trying to think of some analogies about this. All of them were kind of lame. You know, it's like Jesus is like a tour guide, but he's more than that. So that's lame. But what God is doing of taking creation, taking us from creation to new creation, he's doing it through Jesus. And and what I'd like to do is that through our time together, by looking into God's word, I want us to come away with our hearts freshly stirred in worship and enjoyment of Jesus. That's really the aim of of our time together this morning. To understand what God has done, what he's offering us through Jesus, taking us from creation to new creation. Now, it's impossible to say everything about that in a sermon, okay? There's a lot that the scriptures talk about. Lots of ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures. So today I want to draw our attention to just two areas where Jesus is taking humanity from creation to new creation. And we're going to do that by looking more deeply at the comparisons and contrasts between the first Adam in the garden and Jesus, the last Adam. That terminology of first Adam, last Adam, is drawn from a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus there is called that last Adam. So what can we learn about God's plan of taking humanity from creation to new creation from the first Adam and the last Adam? There's going to be two simple ways this morning that we're going to see that. The first is this. The first Adam brought sin and death. The last Adam brought justification and life. The first Adam brought sin and death. The last Adam brought justification and life. By the way, if you are a member here, you've been coming here for any length of time, I don't think anything that I'm going to say this morning will be new or will be, will be clever. I'm going to be reminding us of the same old good news. But I hope that God will be pleased to use the Spirit to freshly affect our hearts with the wonder of the good news of Christ. In Genesis, uh, if you remember uh, back in the beginning of the series, uh, we looked in the Genesis account of the fall. Uh, we read in Genesis the God's special act of creation of, of mankind, of Adam and Eve. He places Adam and Eve in a garden of splendor and abundance. The best feature of that garden, though, by the way, was not the trees. It was not the stream. The best feature of that garden was their nearness and unhindered relationship with God. God gives them responsibility in the garden to, to tend for, to care for. We, we read that in Genesis 2.15. And God also gave them broad permission. He abundantly provided for their needs. He says, of all the trees in the garden, you can eat freely except for one tree. The one tree was forbidden. They were given broad permission, one prohibition. Most of us are familiar with this account, right? In Genesis chapter 3, we read about how a new character enters the scene. It was the serpent, Genesis 3.1. I'm going to read the first six verses just to remind us of this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There's so much in here, in that simple six verses of Genesis 3. The reason I had us review that section in Genesis, what's commonly called the fall, is to help us understand the background to what Paul is writing in Romans 5 about the theological significance of what the first Adam did and what Jesus did. And that's what takes us to Romans chapter 5, which is what I hope you have in your Bibles and what was read for us this morning. Which, by the way, can I just say, just kind of on the side, in, in Genesis 3, I realize we live in a world where, you know, does, does anybody even know what the word sin means anymore? Do we need to even stop and kind of go back and define that? Maybe. But by the way, our society kind of defines wrong as things that hurt other people, right? Like it's okay to live your life the way you want to as long as you're not hurting other people. We've kind of removed the whole notion of sin. Genesis 3 is a reminder that sin is sin because there is right and wrong and God has said it so. It is not an issue of does what you do harm someone else? And if not, well then go ahead and live your life the way you'd like to. There is a God. He has said things. He has said this is right and this is wrong. And that is what defines sin. When you read Genesis 3, the Genesis account there, really, how is Eve, how is Adam hurting anybody else? They just ate some fruit, right? If we use our current popular mindset in understanding how the world works, we're going to come away with horrible conclusions about how the life works. The scriptures give us the way of life. And the scriptures show us, here is who God is. Here is what he has said. Here is how you should order your life. Because this is the path to know and enjoy him forever. Okay, just, just an aside, okay? Um, I read from Genesis 3, not to remind us of what sin is or isn't, but to, re- to help us understand the significance of what Paul then writes about in Romans chapter 5. Something happened in the garden. There was a temptation. Sadly, horrifically, sin entered the world through, through what Adam and Eve did there in the garden, through Adam sinning as the federal representative head of humanity. That's a whole other kind of theological uh, discussion there, but as that headship, All of humankind then was plunged into a sinful condition. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 5. It was read for us this morning, but look at verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. By the way, there's a little bit of a nuance there, and if you get kind of irritated about Adam being the kind of the representative of humanity, and his sin now plunged all of us into sin... The scriptures say there's a little bit more that happened there. It wasn't just that he was kind of the representative of us that sinned, but we, in a sense, as, as the progenity of Adam, were kind of participating with him, in a sense, in that sin. I don't know, that's kind of complicated to get through theologically, but it says that death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. It's as if when Adam sinned, we all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, I realize I took a risk there reading in Romans 5 because there's so much theology that kind of makes our minds jump down different ways of thinking. But I'd like for the purposes this morning for us to focus in on that last phrase there in verse 14, that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Paul explains that the reason every person is born with a sinful nature is because of Adam's sin in the garden. Now, that might irritate you. That might, you know, kind of irritate you that, come on, you know, give, up, give us a chance. You know, throw me in the garden and let, let me have a chance at it. But actually, it says that 
is descendants of Adam, we are all in a sinful condition. And before we get too upset about that, I want us to notice that it says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Who is the one who was to come? Well, as Christians who have now the completed scripture, we know the one who was to come is Jesus. If we keep reading in Romans 5, in verse 15, it says the free gift is not like the trespass, not like the sin. If many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one sin brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's the way it is in this creation, right? We're all sinners because of Adam's sin. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, not death, in life. How? Through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's sin in the garden plunged all humankind into a sinful condition that makes us recipients of God's wrath. We are under condemnation for our sin. But the free gift of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brings justification for everyone who will receive the abundance of grace using Romans' language and the free gift of righteousness through Jesus. Justification is that theological term about God declaring sinners righteous. You're unrighteous as a sinner. Now God declares you righteous. How does he do that? How does he make that legal declaration? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus being applied to you through faith. This is how God brings us from creation to new creation. With Adam's sin, this current creation is plunged into a sinful condition. In Romans 8, it talks about how all creation is groaning, how we are groaning and longing to be redeemed, to be brought back into relationship with God and delivered from the condemnation of our sin. We need a new creation. Who is going to bring that to us? Well, the scriptures say Jesus. So we've been looking at Genesis 3, how Adam sinned, plunged us all into the sinful condition. Creation is now doomed. We need a new creation. Who's going to bring that to us? We know that it's going to be Jesus, but how is he going to do that? Well, if we fast forward then to the Gospels, we're told about another temptation. Adam, the first Adam tempted in, in this garden paradise. The second, the last Adam, Jesus, his temptation is strikingly different. The contrasts are striking. The first Adam, who is tempted, was in a garden of paradise. He is surrounded by the bountiful provisions of a garden paradise. The last Adam, instead of being in a garden paradise, he's in the wilderness, Matthew 4 where Adam and Eve were surrounded by a bountiful garden paradise full of fruit-bearing trees, Jesus says that, it says that Jesus in, in Mark 1 was surrounded with wild animals in the wilderness where he is, was fasting for 40 days. So the, the, Eve and Adam's temptation to take and eat was from a position of plenty. When Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness and tells Jesus, take this, take, create this and take and eat, make bread to take and eat, Jesus was tempted from a place of, of, being, of deprivation. And we can continue to look at the contrast between all those different temptations that Jesus faced that are recorded for us in Matthew 4 and the contrast of Adam in the first, in the first Adam in the garden. They're striking. You couldn't look at, at two stories that are, that are more different. 
As you keep kind of pulling on that thread, you've got Adam and Eve in a garden enjoying fellowship with God. Jesus goes through those temptations in the wilderness with great success, and he ends up in a garden eventually, and he prays and sweats great drops of blood in a garden, all as he marches forward to be a covenant-keeping God, inaugurating this new covenant of salvation. Adam was tempted to take and eat from a place of plenty. Jesus, in the Last Supper, offers to his disciples to take and eat of this bread and, and drink this juice in remembrance of the, what he is going to be doing. It's something we're going to do together this morning after our Coffee Connect time, gathering together again to remember the cross work of Christ. Jesus did all of this. Is there really a connection between Adam in the garden and Jesus in the wilderness? Yes. Take another look at Romans 5, 15-17 about how it gives credit to what Jesus did through his righteous life. That righteousness was real. Through his sacrificial death, through his resurrection, how that, those acts of God's, those God's great saving acts then are applied to the sinner who, who embraces Christ through faith and how God then declares them righteous. He justifies them, gives them new life. According to that passage, the pathway from creation to new creation is not through moral reform. It is not through accomplishing ten steps to have the best, better life now. It is not through systematically trying to pursue virtues on your own strength. It is not through the pursuit of of charitable work. It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and Him alone. Jesus is the only way we can enjoy the new creation. Romans 8 says that this creation is groaning, waiting for redemption, and it points us towards Jesus, who brings us this new creation. That way, the God-man Jesus, is the only way. Romans 5 tells us that as a result of Adam's sin, we were plunged into condemnation with the reward of death. We see that in physical death, of course, in the Genesis account. All through the scriptures, those genealogies kind of just obnoxiously remind us that death was the outcome. Because it says they lived this long and then he died. He lived this long, then he died. They lived this long, then he died. One of the effects of that repetition is to put into our hard hearts, our, our, our hard-headedness, that the result of sin is the curse of death. And physical death is simply a shadow of the greater death of our separation with God. But 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a, man has come, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The Christians, friends, guests, have you been made alive in Christ? That is what makes you a Christian. Have you been made alive in Christ? This is the only way that you can be taken from creation to new creation, is being made alive in Christ. That's the central message of Christianity. This is the good news. This is what Christians call the gospel, the good news. The Christian scriptures are not primarily a handbook or a manual for living life. That's why we can get so bogged down as we read through our Bibles, especially as we get through some of those those difficult passages like we read last week in, in Leviticus that are just kind of like, man, there's gruesome and there's death and these animals and blood and and the sacrifice and burning and all the strange customs that are going on. What does it have to do with my life today? It has to do with your life today by understanding all of those things work together and point us towards the fulfillment of Jesus, of the life that he offers you, the significance 
The depth of the love of God for you to deliver you from sin this way. This Christian scriptures show how God is taking us from creation to new creation. The prophets, the Psalms, all of them are pointing us towards God's plan through Christ, taking us from creation to new creation. Here's the question then. Do you know Jesus? It's not, are you religious? Do you know a lot about God? Can you quote Bible verses? Listen, anyone can do that. The question is, do you know Jesus? Has he taken you from creation to new creation through applying to you through faith his life, death, and resurrection? If you do not know Jesus like this, if you're maybe curious, if that kind of, maybe, maybe I mean, here you are at a Christian church hearing the gospel preached, you're like, hey, I'm kind of curious about that more and more. We would love for you to keep coming because we are going to keep preaching Christ. We would love for you to ask us questions so that you could understand more and more what it means to have your sins forgiven and to be taken from creation to new creation through Christ. So, as we look at the garden temptation of the first Adam and the wilderness temptation of the last Adam, we realize that this last Adam, Jesus, is the one who brings us from creation to new creation. What else? How else is Jesus bringing us from creation to new creation? There's a lot of ways For this morning, here's the second way we're going to look at, and this will conclude us. Jesus brings us from creation, from a creation separated from God to a new creation where we will be with God. Jesus brings us from a creation separated from God to a new creation where we will be with God. The sin of the first animal was catastrophic. Plunged us into a human, into a condition of sin. The stories and the, and the curses that are recorded in Genesis 3 reveal for us the depth of that problem. You've got things that just cascade all sorts of ways and that, that where sin wreaks havoc in, in lives, right? We live in a world where we realize things are not the way they should be. Babies should not die. Oppression should not flourish. Murder, theft, wars, genocide should not be realities. Our hearts know this. We long for a creation that is new. On and on we could go. Yet at the same time, our present creation is this is this simultaneous mix of things that are glorious, right? Look at a sunset. And things that are flawed, look in the mirror. In Genesis 3, we learn that the shame and guilt that entered the world because of sin spread into our relationships, where human relationships were flourishing. Now they were flawed, right? Adam and Eve now hide from each other, and they blame each other. Humankind's relationship with God is is catastrophically altered. Now there's an obstacle of sin that prevents us from being near God. So in Genesis, the account, it says that Adam and Eve were hiding from God. No longer were they near him. And as a result, God banished them from the garden. And that is our condition that we have had ever since. We have been banished from God and from his close fellowship because of our sin. We need some way for that obstacle to be removed. I know we've just gone over it. Jesus is the way. But as you read through the stories of the Old Testament... It becomes apparent of one of them that this major issue of our separation from God, that's the major issue that needs to be solved. Salvation is not God giving you everything that you want to make your life good according to your way. He's not enhancing, He's not deepening our depraved desires. Does that make sense? God is ultimately, God, God through, through the gospel, through creation and new creation, is giving us a new heart that would long and love him. So this idea of separation with God and our longing to be reunited with the one who will satisfy our souls is all through the scriptures. 
I'm going to do a quick survey of this to prove it to you. When Adam encounters, has an encounter, when Abraham has an encounter with God, he marks and he commemorates that occasion by building an altar of worship. The same goes for Jacob. He has an encounter with God's presence. It is so striking to him. It is so fearful and awful and wonderful at the same time that he gives it a special name and he, he commemorates it by constructing there a place of worship. One of the major features of the Israelites' wilderness wanderings was the construction of the tabernacle where God's presence could be found. And as you read through the Old Testament, which, by the way, I hope that you keep reading your Bibles, okay? If you have lost heart in doing that, let me just kind of give you a shot in the arm. Where, pick up wherever you left off, start reading. But as you read through, there's all these, here's what the Israelites did, here's who packed up that section, who packed up this section, how they formed, how they traveled. It's, you're like, come oh, man, how does this have anything to do with our life today in Highlands Ranch, Littleton, Centennial, Colorado? It has to do with understanding that there were elaborate, painstaking details that went into how does somebody going to approach God? The tabernacle was one of those locations. Moses would go and talk with God. He would leave the tabernacle. His face would shine. The Israelites said, put a veil over that. It's, dist- it's disturbing. It's so bright. Pastor Steve spoke some about the temple last week. Solomon, when he built the temple, he prays a prayer of blessing. God's presence descends on the temple so it so overwhelmed the priests, they had to flee. God's presence was there. Of course, we were reminded last week about the sacrificial system, how someone could approach God only through those specific stipulations of those sacrifices. In the temple, there were areas that were off limits for people. Right? Very not politically correct today, right? There were places where you could not go. doesn't matter what you say you are, who you are. You will not go there. God said there were careful stipulations that were required to enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark was, which was a representation of God's presence. The high priest only could go in there once a year to offer atonement for sin with blood. During the times of Judges, the person who had the word from the Lord was the one that rose to the surface and the one who God used to bring deliverance to his people. Later on in the Kings, during the time of Elijah, the phrase in that account with Elijah, the phrase that keeps repeating over and over is the phrase about the word of the Lord because the word of the Lord was a representation, was a reminder, was an expression of God's presence. Fast forward now, tracing this, this theme further into the Gospels. You have the Apostle John writing in his Gospel about Jesus coming to earth and he describes Jesus as the word, becoming flesh and doing what? Dwelling among us. Here's again the sense of God's presence drawing near, but there's still this obstacle. We can't draw near all the way. There's still these obstacles, this veil, this holy of holies, these priests. Jesus is called Emmanuel in Matthew 1, which means what? God with us. It's like we're getting close, but there's still these obstacles. Before Jesus left this earth, he assured his disciples that he was leaving to prepare a place for them so that what? Where I am, you may be also. In John 14. How does all this tie then into what we're looking at from creation to new creation? Well, in the garden, the first Adam sinned and our nearness to God was destroyed. It was lost. The last Adam, Jesus, lived a perfect life, gave his life in a sacrificial death, rose again to give us new life for this purpose, to bring us to God. Peter, the apostle, writes about it this way in 1 Peter 3. He says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. For what purpose? 
so that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Where Adam brought us death, Jesus brings us life. 1 Corinthians 15 says it is written, The first man, Adam, being a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What is life? John 17, Jesus said it this way, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you remember some of what we looked at last week with the sacrifices? Remember looking into Hebrews? In Hebrews 7, we're told that the law made nothing perfect. And we know this. It just, it just exacerbated our awareness of how much lawbreakers we are. But on the other hand, it says in Hebrews 7.19, a better hope is introduced. This is Jesus. This hope that was introduced, what is the effect of that hope through which we draw near to God? Later on in Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says that He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who, what? Draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. You could keep pulling that thread of the idea of nearness to God through Hebrews, paralleling it with what's going on in the Old Testament sacrificial system about these obstacles to being near with God. But in Hebrews 9, the Old Testament worship system is described. The holy place, the most holy place, they're discussed. We read some of those passages last week. In Hebrews 9.7, we're reminded that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, Israel worshipped through the mediation of a priest. The most holy place, there was a separation by a veil. Only the priest, high priest could enter there. But then we're told that when Jesus died on the cross, when he finished his great saving acts, which, by the way, we sang about that this morning in the song, The Blood of Jesus Speaks for Me. It talks about... These, these words that Jesus cried out. It says that Jesus cried these words out with no vengeance. That's what we, do. we sang about that this morning. In Mark 15, it says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Here's what happened immediately after that. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's why Hebrews 10, we're told that it says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see, our modern day ears just read through that. We just kind of glaze right over it. Friends, we've lost all of what God has been doing from taking creation to new creation. with All these sacrifices, all these laws, all these stipulations, all these rites and rituals that had to go through, these ceremonies, these priests, these celebrations, these festivals, these feasts. And all of them. Now we have entrance, we have confidence to enter somewhere an Israelite for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years would have never dreamed to enter, but longed to enter. Now we can draw near by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, creation to new creation. Through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what should our response be? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, where the first Adam destroyed nearness to God, Jesus, the last Adam, brings us near God so we can enjoy him forever in this new creation. So what are we supposed to do with all this? Okay, Here we, What are we supposed to do? Well, I want to caution us against looking for something to do. <laughs> 
that might be one of the, if that's our primary response to these truths, I just want us to pump the brakes on that. I'm not saying that Christ, Christians don't do things. We do, okay? We've been created for good works, yes. But our proclivity to try to do something is probably part of our problem of embracing and enjoying the gospel as God intends. I came across an illustration of this in a book I was reading this past week, and it made me laugh. I'll read it to you, okay? Quote, Our approach to the Christian life is absurd as the enthusiastic young man who had just received his plumber's license and was taken to see Niagara Falls. He studied it for a minute and then said, I think I can fix this. Friends, Jesus has fixed it. Jesus did it. Not you. And you're not doing it now as a Christian either. Jesus did it. He's the one that brings us from creation to new creation. We failed, we sinned, we're plunged into sin, we're condemned, we're hopeless. But Jesus did it. He brings us from creation to new creation. Our problem of getting from creation to new creation isn't something we can fix. God did. So our problem, what I'd like to encourage us to do is simply believe and appreciate more deeply all that God has done for us and promised us in Christ. If there's one response from us as a church family, maybe it's this. Draw near to God this week, friends. Draw near. You've been taken from creation to new creation. Enjoy the blessings and benefits of that. Stop looking to this creation to satisfy you the way, you, the way we're told in the Scriptures. Only the new creation will satisfy. Only God, knowing Him, enjoying Him more and more, will satisfy the, 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 the longings of our soul. I want to encourage us to rest with fresh confidence in Christ. Not in your track record this week. Not in your religious activities this week. Rest in Christ freshly, gladly. Rest in Him this week. Fully assured that you have been brought near not through your efforts, not through your accomplishments. No, through Christ. And the works that He produces in us are a result of what Christ has done. We don't impress God to get near Him. No. If that's been in your mind this last week, if you came in this morning with a heart burdened by guilt about feeling far away from God because you just haven't lived up to, to God, friends, run to Christ. You've been brought near in Him. Let your, your Christian life be strengthened to produce good works. Yes, right? We've been called to good works, but let your heart be encouraged and strengthened in good works because of what Christ has done, not to earn nearness with God. If there's one thing that we might do then, I know I've told us to pump the brakes on that, here's, here's what I'd encourage you to do this week. Draw near to God. Draw near. God's nearness is something He has accomplished for us, something we can enjoy this week. And I hope the sermon will encourage you to stick around and remember and celebrate Christ as we observe the Lord's Supper. Where the first Adam brought death, Jesus, the last Adam, brings life. Where the first Adam plunged us into a curse, the last Adam brings us into a new creation where we can enjoy God forever. That creation is described in Revelation 21, verse 3. It says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, that's kind of an old way of saying, Look! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the new creation, friends. So this, this week, I know that day hasn't come yet. <laughs> we live in a world that reminds us of that all the time. We look in the mirror and are reminded of that all the time. Friends, we've been taken from creation to new creation through Christ. Praise God for Jesus.